Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Jeremy Wayne Tate is the CEO of Classical Learning Test, an alternative to the SAT, and a classical education advocate. He hosts a podcast called Anchored, and I think he's right at the center of this growing web of new schools, co-ops, academic conferences, debates, all centered around a more classical vision of education and what the, the, the Western canon might have to teach us and, and how relevant it still remains to what what used to be considered education or, or being a well-educated person. Um since we are coming up here on National School Choice Week, I wanted to invite him on High Noon to talk about that vision, um, which I think is, and we'll talk about this, largely, if not entirely incompatible with the like the, the structure and underlying foundations of our current public education system. Um, but really, it has has so much to offer the the debate and the, the place that we're at as a country as well. Um, so welcome, Jeremy, to High Noon. Inez, thanks so much for having me. Um, so you and I go way, way back, uh, back when I was an ed policy wonk, uh, exclusively. Yeah. So we've been, we've been talking about some of the problems with the education system for a long time. Um, but, but explain for folks, what is CLT? What is the CLT vision of education? Yeah. And as, thanks so much. And, and I always give, you know, the disclaimer, it may sound like, wow, this is going to be boring. We're going to talk about a standardized test, which really at the, at the core of it is what CLT is. It's a classic learning test. It's an alternative to the SAT and ACT, but it was really born out of this conviction that these tests really do, they drive what happens in the classroom. Uh, a lot of private schools, especially private Christian Catholic schools, but also all kind of public schools, uh, if they were actually forced to compete, which they're not. Uh, but the ones that do have to compete, mostly the way they have to compete is, is through something connected to the college board, right? They're, they're competing based on the number of national merit winners, right? Which comes through college board, right? The, the PSAT. Uh, they're competing on the, their average AP score or their average SAT score. Um, and it ends up becoming a really powerful driver for everything that happens in the classroom. Um, the problem, though, is that the college board is radically disconnected uh, from the kind of education really that gave birth to America, which is classical education. Um, and so the idea behind the CLT is, is pretty simple. Uh, it is to uh, create a competitor to the college board that would drive direction towards the tradition that was foundational to America uh, rather than away from it. Yeah, you know, um, the, the, there's nothing more boring than those SAT passages. Um, I, I used to be a, a test prep uh, teacher for the SAT. And so I, I know the test better than 99.9% .9 of people because I, I've probably taken it dozens, if not a hundred times. Um, yeah. And they they used to they the company I worked for, which I won't say the name of it here, but um, they used to give the teachers uh, every every year or so they used to administer a test, the SAT, um, but they would give us the reading section without the reading passages, right? So all we had were the questions and the answers, um, and we were, and we could guess. We could guess based on knowing a lot about the test and knowing sort of the politically correct mindset from where yeah. it came and the college board, um, we we got like 50 or 60% of the questions correct on average, which is way above the 20% that would be random, right? So we were scoring sometimes into the well into the 500s on the reading section without reading a single word of the passages, right? So it's, it's just, yeah. it just goes to show how um, substanceless. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, in the better, like in the higher sense, the, these tests actually yeah. are. And you're, as you say, they drive 
curriculum all over the country. Yeah, you know, and as I think a lot of people still have a picture of the SAT being like what they took in high school. Um, the only thing about the SAT that has not changed is is the name and that it is still in English. That's it, right? Everything, if you took the SAT before about 2006, everything else has changed, right? There's no analogies. There's no logic questions. Everything that you remember making the SAT, the SAT is now is now gone. Um, it, it really is a really, really different test. And the rigor, I mean, the, the new SAT that they released in 2016, they released a concordance chart comparing the 2015 and the 2016, uh, and everybody just gets 70 points on the new SAT, right? It's just a shameless kind of dumbing down of standards. Um, you know, speaking of dumbing down of standards, I think uh, a lot of people, particularly on the right, but but also a lot of apolitical people, you know, when there's this movement now to drop the SAT from college admissions, um, and they're worried about that, right? Because it seem seemingly uh, is the the only standardizer, the only thing that um, you know cannot be manipulated to to some. Although as a test prep teacher, I, I would say that it's completely manipulable, but um, you know, it, it, they they're worried that dropping the SAT will mean a drop in rigor um, mm. and and sort of objectively measurable standards. Um, you know, do you think the SAT serves that function still um, as bad a test as it is, or do you think that it'll be better if colleges do not use the SAT at all? You know, it, it's really interesting. A college entrance entrance exam reflects. Uh, edu mainstream educational uh, aspirations and ideals, right? If you go back to look at the exams that Harvard was using throughout the 19th century and before, you know, students are translating passages, long passages uh, from Latin into English or from Greek into English or the other way, the way around. Um, the SAT rolls out in 1929 and was a very rigorous uh, standard for a long time until they really started to mess with it in, in the 90s, okay, uh, around a lot of charges and accusations that the SAT was biased towards uh, different different backgrounds. I think the SAT has been reflective of, uh, and the changes in the SAT have been reflective of this downward slope uh, in standards that we've had. And the final straw is just getting rid of the test altogether, right, which is what they're doing now with test optional. And, you know, two things really happen with test optional. Uh, about 95% right now of colleges are test optional. It's almost everyone. There's a few exceptions, you know, Patrick Henry and Christian Oman. Most students still submit to places like Hillsdale, and they may go back to requiring a test. But two things happened. One was that, uh, you know, post-George Floyd, you had people like Congressman Bowman on the floor of the United States Congress uh, saying that standardized testing was a pillar of, of systematic racism in America. Um, and that is the thing colleges are most terrified of, uh, is being called racist in any way. Uh, they don't want that to happen. The other is that tests actually were not easily easy to find, right? And so CLT was not that well known at the time. Uh, 2020 was was pretty crazy for us as for a while we were, we were kind of the only test available, right? They Every testing center was shut down for SAT, ACT. Those two things combined, uh, we went from about 40% of colleges that were test optional to 95%. And so it's going to be really interesting to see what the next few years bring um, and a couple colleges have already moved back towards saying, okay, we're not going to require a test for admission, but you can't start your classes until you take one of these tests because of for placement purposes. And so I think that the pendulum is going to swing back towards testing, uh, but maybe in, in different ways than it was historically. I mean, so, so 
one of the big differences here um, between your test and the SAT is that it's <laughs> that the passages on your test are actually and the things that are testing those quasi neutral skills, right? Like reading comprehension, you're actually giving a student something worth reading and comprehending. Um, you know, on on that test, as you say, you're tying them to the great American heritage, the great Western heritage, and to something even even beyond that, something um, that that actually ties to something about the human experience. Um, you know, it, we hear all the time about in a larger context and testing um, about what's in what, for example, books will be assigned in English lit or. Um, and, and it seems like the standard often for making those decisions, other than pure ideology and sort of identity politics, um, in a more pernicious and personal way is, can the students find, quote unquote, find themselves in the text, yeah. right? Um, and they mean that in a wholly superficial way. Like, yeah. are there any left-handed, bisexual, 11-year-old redheads, like, yeah. in... <laughs> <laughs> in this text, well, if not, then this text is irrelevant, uh, yeah. you know, to people of that description. I mean, what feedback has you have you gotten from students taking this test about, I mean, for many of them, I imagine this may be the first time that they are actually confronting and reading texts that generations have found valuable about mm -hmm. something about the human condition that might be universal. You know, the, the question about source material, I mean, this is kind of the, the main reason why we launched. And so SAT and ACT both have these ridiculous uh, sensitivity committees. I think they're ridiculous because, and, and our chief operating officer here at CLT, she worked for all of Pearson, Numeridian, all of the big testing companies. And uh, it, it went from, okay, we don't want students to read something that they would have uh, an adverse reaction to, and it would be distracting the test taking process, uh, to now kind of finding everything offensive. Okay. Uh, she, my, my COO tells stories about them not being allowed to use passages with uh, two married parents, right? Because that would trigger uh, or be very you know, upsetting to parents, to students from a single family home, um, not being able to use uh, heterosexual relationships as that would make, uh, you know, gay students feel uncomfortable as well. And so like everything gets, gets winnowed out to being offensive, which is why the SAT you end up reading literally passages about penguins and in, in, in antarctica right because apparently nobody's had a bad experience with penguins in antarctica um and so that's the kind of source material they're left using clt we really take and we've kind of bucked the entire industry trend with this is we take almost the exact opposite approach is we say look if a text can't offend anyone it's probably not very important either right and so and we we get positive feedback we also get negative feedback we get we got a bunch of christians and catholics that take our test we put Nietzsche on our test. We put Darwin on our test. Uh, those are crucially important authors for young people to be reading. Uh, and they may not be passages that the young people agree with, but we actually want to make the case that it's the mark uh, of an educated person to read something and to comprehend it, uh, even if you don't understand it, uh, and do so without having an emotional meltdown at the same time. Yeah. I mean, so when did we lose the idea of connecting backwards in time to some of these great texts, whether it's philosophy or literature, you know, um, that, that they actually have 
may find some, we, we may actually find ironically, like that, that personal connection that, uh, I think a lot of modern education is so obsessed with, um, mm. you know, I, I think we're really locking students out of something one universal about the human experience, but two, um, you know, we're, we're locking them out of being able to understand each other through, mm. through a common body of, of whatever you want to call it, the canon, right? And it's not that I don't recognize that the canon changes over time. Obviously, things are added. Um, and and it's, it's a debatable thing, what is and isn't canon. But, but the quality of some of the, the texts that I mean, even when I was in high school, I mean, I remember a house on Mango Street, for example, was like a big yeah. assigned... That that's not a comparable text to I don't know Jane Eyre, right? It just it just isn't, mm. um, and it, it's much more superficial and has much less to say about questions that will confront these students at some point in their lives about you know love, life, death, like you know religion. Um, th- these are questions that every person at some point in their lives runs into, right? A lot of people try to block them out as long as possible, mm-hmm. but life has a way of, of forcing you to confront um, some of these questions. And I, I worry how, you know, how many students who are ostensibly quote unquote well-educated don't have anything to fall back on in their education for mm-hmm. those moments of life, as opposed to quote unquote college and career. You know, I, I, you reference kind of the, the universal human experiences, uh, experiences of, of longing or, or betrayal, you know, or, um, you know, th- these are not, they go far beyond uh, the superficial things, you know, skin color uh, and others. The idea that, that black students uh, in New York City or something can't relate to Shakespeare uh, is incredibly denigrating to those students, right? Uh, can they not relate to uh, being in love with somebody that your family is not accepting of, right? Uh, all of these things transcend uh, space and time. And I, I think we're finally having a, a national uh, conversation uh, about this. But, you know, and as a book that, that hit me really hard uh, this year was, and I, I finally read it, just read it, which I'm uh, kind of embarrassed to uh, admit, is Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. Uh, and I, I would really, really recommend it. And I think it captures... Uh, it, for me, it, it kind of articulated a lot of the things that I understood, but um, the loss of education as transmission. And so if you think about what is what even is education, most generations understood it as a kind of like sacred transmission. Uh, I think there's a visual image I'd love to share with you. I was at a bar mitzvah for uh, one of my daughter's friends years ago, and I was thinking through all of this stuff at the time, and she was a really tiny little girl, right? And uh, her parents during this ceremony, they they passed down to her this massive uh, Torah, right? During this ceremony. And it was kind of funny because she was so tiny, she's holding this massive scroll that covers up her whole face and everything. But what it was, was the passing down of what mattered most, right? And fundamentally, that's what education was, right? Uh, Chesterton describes education as the soul of a society being passed from one generation to the next. That understanding about education as fundamentally about transmission of the best of what has been thought and said, that is what has been wholly lost in the mainstream K-12 environment. Um, and my, my hope is that, you know, expect, you know, as parents are seeing a lot of the nonsense that their students, that their children are ingesting uh, now that so many students are, are at home, um, that they're going to look at traditional options, classical options, 
uh, as an answer to um, where they want their kids to go instead. Yeah, you know, um, how, how do you make that case for a civilizational transmission, as you would call it, uh, in, in an age where um, people are so morally certain that everyone in the past was morally repugnant, right? Um, and not worth, um, not worth admiring for any of their deeds or their personal qualities, um, but merely judging them by the, the fashionable standards of the age, or even the, the things that aren't just fashionable standards of the age, right? Like the, the deep evil of human slavery. Um, how, how do you make the case for truly classical learning and a transmission of civilizational, you know, soul, as you just quoted Chesterton, right? Um, yeah. When a lot of people no longer think the soul of our civilization is worth transmitting. Hmm. Such a such a thoughtful question. So uh, another book that you that you've got to read is is C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. I think it is the most important book in the 20th century about education. And it's really interesting what Lewis does. Essentially, he he grounds uh, the idea of basically what we would call in the West something like natural law. In the Abolition of Man, he refers to it as as the Tao instead, um, and he makes the case that education um, was conforming the pupil to reality, right? The, the universal realities that, I mean, Lewis makes this case elsewhere as well, that what we would even, what we would call morality really isn't that different from place to place, right? You generally have uh, the concepts to, to treat each other well, to not, uh, you know, commit adultery, to not lie, to not steal. These things are not honored in any flourishing society. Any flourishing society has the same basic understanding of natural law or or the Tao. And that Lewis makes the point that, that education traditionally was to get the pupil to conform to that existing reality, right? Uh, and, and be happier doing so. Um, and that that's what ruptured and, and Lewis saw it coming uh, in, in the, the 20th century. And I think that's what these classical schools, you know, a lot of, a lot of the classical tradition is being re-embraced among the Catholic, Catholic schools as well. That's the fundamental difference, I think, um, if, that, if that makes sense in answering your question. You, you've really had, <clears throat> sorry, um, you've really, you've really had a lot of success in kind of advocating for this classical vision across uh, ideological lines, right? Um, in in the higher ed space, I think about you know Hillsdale, <clears throat> Hillsdale College, and and St. John's University, right? Um, two classical based models uh, of higher education. Um, and, and you, you've, you've held a conference with, um, folks like Professor George, who was on this podcast and Cornell West, who is definitely a man of the left. Um, and, and it seems like they've both found something in the vision that you're, I, I don't even want to say advocating as much as reviving, right. Um, in, in education. I mean, ha have you had broader success, uh, reaching people through, talking about this model of education um, beyond, I, I'm just thinking of Cornell West now, but, yeah. but uh, you know, beyond Cornell West, who's a, a really open guy um, for, for a man of the left, I think, to uh, at least talk about conservative ideas. Um, have you had broader, broader success in, you know, uh, talking about this vision of education with, with perhaps people who, who think that the past um was shameful or, 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 um, or, or come at it from a more sort of woke left perspective. 
Yeah, it, it's been tough. And as you know, I think we're, we're in this, especially social media, media age, a digital age where like everybody gets uh, pigeonholed or kind of push into, into one direction or another. People just don't have categories almost anymore for things that can possibly transcend like a political lens to look at the world. Um, I love Cornel West. He's been incredibly uh, engaged and friendly. Uh, I talked to him a number of times over the past year, in addition to the podcast and having him out. Um, and I think he gets the importance of that. And the interesting thing about Cornell West is that he's so far to the left of even people on the left that when he stops and says, wait a minute, the, the tradition of Jerusalem and Athens um, are, are unique contributions to the whole world. We, we need to pay particular attention to the value uh, of these traditions. Um, so I think, and I wish there were, were more voices uh, like him. And we have connected with a few. In fact, I, I co-host my own podcast with uh, Aruba Asim, who's a young college student who's actually Muslim, uh, who's found this tradition as well. In fact, one of our most downloaded episodes we did with, for the Anchor podcast is with Hamza Youssef, who's a Muslim scholar, good friends with Robbie George as well, who's the president uh, of Zaytuna College in California, Muslim liberal arts college. Um, and so there is, uh, uh, for classical education, you know, there's a revival of this going on in, in, in Jewish communities and secular communities. Christian communities, Muslim communities. I think what it is is a rediscovering uh, of the beauty of tradition. And, and look, everybody on some level, everybody gets this, right? Uh, it's the reason why I think, uh, you know, like Downton Abbey and, uh, you know, The Crown and Outlander, it's why they do so well on Netflix and why people are so enamored with like, there's something captivating and beautiful about the old world, right? But there's this like hard place that modern man is in and that he's captivated with the beauty of the old world, but at the same time, he hates the ideas that led those people to build what they built, right? And these people were not cultural relativists uh, at all, right? They had very fixed idea about who God was and, and who man is. Um, and so, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun. I wish that there were uh, more folks uh, on the left politically uh, that were enthusiastic about this. Interestingly, CLT itself, uh, we're almost 50-50 in terms of we, we, we're this rare place where we have great conversations about all things politi political. We have we have like diehard Bernie Sanders fans here and diehard Trump fans here and, and have really thoughtful conversations politically. But I think it's because there's a common ground in a love for the classics that transcends, um, you know, national kind of spectator politics uh, that allows us to have something deeper. Um, and, and that's, I think, a, a big problem with where we're at nationally right now is that there's not there's not something deeper, right, than like the silliness of national spectator politics that people can relate to. And so if you're not agreeing for like the same, you know, old person, uh, then there's like, there's not a common ground anymore, right? Whereas I think this is what classical education can bring. Um, and again, you know, this isn't a new thing. This is the way 100% of America's founders were educated. This, this just was education. In fact, the only reason we keep, you know, using this uh, modifier classical is to to just we're getting back at like what always was education um, until radical progressive education became the new norm uh, in the 20th century. Yeah, you know, Thomas Jefferson was the strongest advocate for what we would consider public, what he called public schooling or universal schooling, um, but we would consider today actually uh, just public funding, right? <laughs> public funding uh, for universal education, which was not at all a, a foregone conclusion in, in the beginning uh, of America, right? Uh, you might ask yourself why a, a country where so much was left out of uh, government purview, right? Um, 
why education isn't completely privatized or wasn't completely privatized mm -hmm. um, in the beginning of America. And his answer was largely what you just said. Uh, in a republic, there needs to be a common ground, like a, a common body of understanding, not only about, you know, the three branches of government and the Constitution, although they they basically uh, endorse, he strongly endorsed what, what, what today would be called, uh, you know, indoctrination or <laughs> patriotic education, right? Um, yeah. that, that, uh, but, but, but something broader, I think that you had to be in a Republic, you had to be an educated person and know how to live in a Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile? So certainly that's not what's at heart of the public education system today, right? Um, not at all. It, it, I, I like to joke that it's actively anti-Americanizing people. I mean, it's not oh, really yeah. a joke. Um, it, it is anti-Americanizing uh, um, anti young Americans. Um, but is it even compatible with the way structurally that we do education? Mm. Um, meaning, you know, government-run schools that get a check um, from the government per pupil, that have a certain number of hours uh, a day. Well, this is, you know, outdated post pandemic, but like, you know, button seat time, um, students yep. take a certain course, a, a standardized course, and then they take the SAT at the end. And if they're successful, they go to university where they learn how to be cultural Marxist. <laughs> and that, that, that's great. And as you're, you're a UVA law, is that correct? Uh, was, yeah, I graduated a few years ago. Okay, so I spent time in Charlottesville, and I, I had a number of years fascinated, fascinated with, with Jefferson, and, and really, what was education for Thomas Jefferson? You know, I mean, arguably, I, I love uh, JFK's quote, you know, where he, he's speaking to the uh, the winner of the, uh, I guess the, the Nobel Prize winners, and he says, you know, that we've never had so many educated minds in D.C. except for when Thomas Jefferson dined alone, right? Um absolute prodigy from a very young age, but education for him is, is classical languages, right? Um, it is uh, logic, right? Um, so much of what was fundamental, even, you know, Jefferson, who, who translated his own version of the Bible, thought biblical knowledge was crucial to being an educated person. You know, our young people, they, they can't understand, they can't go to, the, to DC and read Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address or his second inaugural address uh, and comprehend it because he makes biblical references where there's absolutely no knowledge, you know, whatsoever. So what what Jefferson, what Frederick Douglass considered education, uh, the meat and potatoes of it is completely gone. And so it's it's a difficult question. Like, what do you what do you do with Jefferson's advocacy for you know a publicly funded kind of education when what his vision for education was looks entirely different from what mainstream education now is, which is is honestly Inez, and as and maybe you have some better insight than I do into this it's really, really hard to define, right? Like if you ask even a high school administrator or a high school superintendent, like what is education? Like it should be a pretty simple question, but you really can't get any kind of clear answer for what like we're even doing. I mean, we spend a trillion dollars a year as a country on this thing we call education um, and it's, it's vague. Like they'll say, well, you know, we're building critical thinking skills and higher level thinking skills. And you say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Right. And, and, often crickets like no, no, it's not really clear because again we've lost this idea of, of of transmitting the best of what has been thought and said passing down the richness of this tradition um and and so in some ways they're actively undermining the tradition instead like that's the work that's happening in schools um i think other than maybe maybe indoctrinating into, into acceptable 
uh, you know, political views. Uh, but it, it is it is in a state of absolute crisis, I think, uh, at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, so we're, we're having this conversation on the eve of school choice week. Um, you know, do you think that your vision of education, I guess the question number one would be, do you think your, your vision of education can succeed in 2022 in America without an underlying system of school choice? Um, that is substantially more pluralistic than we have now, given that it's a minority vision. But but two, sort of a, a more difficult question, I think, for those of us who are on the right or, or approach school choice or um, is, can can that vision of the good, because you're advancing an actual substantive vision that you are labeling a, a good education, right? Or even an education at all. Um, and, you know, how does how is that compatible with a pluralistic system where every student and family chooses for themselves what's, you know, what the best education is? Yeah, I think overwhelmingly, I mean, advocacy for school choice, uh, it depends on, um, you, you got to believe in the, the, the common normal parent to make really, really good decisions. Like suddenly, I love the school choice because it's such a humble opinion. It's like the parent like the normal everyday American parent is actually the expert, like not not the bureaucrats, not the people at the Department of Ed or the state local board of education. It's the parents that are the experts. And, you know, and as in my experience, when you present any parent at all with classical education versus mainstream modern progressive education, um, like every parent that I've experienced really opts for classical, right? Like parents want uh, traditional moral formation to happen in school. They want their kid to come back more honest, not less honest, right? They want them to come back more disciplined uh, in their habits, not less, more responsible, not less responsible. Like that kind of, of, of formation, character formation um, is embedded in classical education, right? Um, I mean, do they want their kids reading, uh, you know, Aesop's Fables and the Chronicles of Narnia or, you know, Diary of a Wimpy Kid and whatever nonsense? I mean, you know, I, I think that the best way to get a pulse of where mainstream K-12 is at right now is to just go to like your local uh, book book fair uh, and see the books that are being offered up to, to young people right now. And it's it's pretty abysmal, like none. And, and what's been really interesting to I me, mean, I, I think most people within the classical renewal movement are, are pretty new within this movement. I just discovered it myself really six, seven, eight years ago. Um, but children know quality. Like they, they know quality. And as soon as I started bringing home like Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop's fables, um, they didn't want the new stuff anymore. They wanted the old stuff. They were way more engaged. And this is what makes classical education so powerful. It's like, there's a reason why these stories like Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella, where we don't even necessarily know where they come from. Like they're hundreds and hundreds of years old, but they survived. Whereas all of these other stories were just lost to time. But these stories somehow had staying power. Every generation said, this story is so powerful. We're going to pass it down. We're going to tell this story to our children. And then they told it to their children. That's what makes a classic a classic because it taps into these universal human longings and desires that transcend wherever they're at. I think this kind of education really appeals to parents. And if they have the choice, we're going to continue to see a massive explosion uh, of classical education. And and it's already happening. I mean, you look at Great Hearts. We have dear friends at Great Hearts, uh, the founders classical. Erica Donald is a dear friend. She's on her board. She's she's rolling out new classical schools in Florida all the time. Of course, uh, 
Her husband is, is a member of the U.S. Congress. Uh, they're both diehard advocates for school choice. But like every classical charter I've ever come in contact with has a wait list that is often bigger than the enrollment of the entire school. And so as soon as these schools are going to get launched, parents says, yes, give me sanity, give me tradition, give me the tried and true. That's what I want for my kids rather than these new ideas that were baked up five minutes ago about, you know, gender and everything else. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about how we measure the success or failure of our education system, there's no measure, maybe that's why the CL, like CLT is so important, but um, there's really no measure for in all of the metrics and all of the like boring sort of grids of federal, uh, you know, and uh, federal education law, there's really nothing that measures or connects in any way with anything that you just said in the last five minutes, right? Um, it all of the metrics are about college and career readiness, which then became Common Core, which then became like there's all these buzzwords, right? Yeah. In education, um, there's very little about formation or preparing students for life as opposed to technical knowledge. I mean, do you think that that's mm. just the inevitable consequence of, of uh, kind of the progressive era uh, and an and elevation of, of expertise in a bureaucratic world? Or I'm putting expertise in quotes, but, you know, there, there are there is such a thing as real technical expertise, mm. um, you know, would you separate that entirely from the notion of education? Would you separate education versus technical training? Um, you know, how would how would you ensure that students in this classical education world are prepared also for the practicalities for, of life, um, as opposed yeah, to the I, more important, perhaps like deeper formation yeah. of of their characters? No, I think it's a great paradox of this movement in that that classical schools are in no way aimed at you know, making students college and career ready, which is kind of the creed of, of the college board. It's the creed of kind of mainstream K-12 education. But ironically, they're making the most employable young people ever, right? Uh, their idea, their vision is, is human flourishing. Their idea is a cultivation uh, of virtue as traditionally understood. Um, and, you know, what's really strange in as is, is for like thousands of years, what what is a good education? A good education in the first century looked a lot like a good education in the 14th century or even the early 20th century. It didn't change all that much. And suddenly we're supposed to believe that what is a good education looks nothing like it looked in all of these other generations, right? Um, they actually use the word formation traditionally. They still do, right? At, at seminaries, right? They, they talk about formation because you would go away and come back different. And we're talking about character development, moral responsibility, becoming an actual adult, where in America we have a, a crisis of adulthood, which is mainly fueled by education that doesn't cultivate uh, responsibility. Say say more about that because um, it, it it's always something that gets me in trouble on like places like Twitter. Um, that I am totally perplexed by my generation, which millennials, you know, as we hit our thirties and and even into our, our mid or late thirties. I'm totally perplexed by the things that so many people in my generation are obsessed with, like fandoms and, um, you know, Disney and uh, <sighs> like, like things that are quintessentially childish. 
Um, and it's not that there's like, it's like the worst thing in the world to, you know, of course you can enjoy you know, Star Wars or, or um, you know, enjoy whatever, whatever you want. Um, it's a free country, but it does strike me as what you're saying, like a crisis of, a, of a adulthood mm-hmm. that nobody finds joy in sort of the adult things in life versus yeah. the things that a five-year-old would find entertaining. I, I like don't understand. It's not even a so much. I mean, I, it is being a little judgy, but, but, <laughs> um, but, but it's not even so much that I'm laying that aside. I like genuinely mm-hmm. don't understand it. I don't understand how an adult's attention at 35 is held by, you know, some of this really childish stuff, I, but, but it does like we have an entire generation that wants to dive back into a ball pit. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is an absolute crisis. And, and, you know, uh, and as uh, ben, ben Sass has become a good friend over uh, the past couple of years, and he wrote a book uh, that I love. And, and regardless of if you agree with Ben or not on, on Trump and their whole battle, um, Ben has the best insight and vision, I think, for uh, what education ought to be. He is hook, line, and sinker behind uh, classical education. Um, and he wrote a book called The Vanishing American Adult. And, and again, regardless of, of your, your views on, on his relationship with Trump or whatnot, it is an incredible read on this crisis of the loss of adulthood. And it is absolutely connected to education, right? That because education is no longer about human formation, about making people into responsible men and women who want to be responsible men and women. Um, that's why we have this crisis of 35-year-olds who are playing video games in their parents' basement and see nothing wrong with it, right? Like no 35-year-old should be comfortable just playing video games in their parents' basement like every day. Like that's that's kind of a, a cultural civilizational crisis. They should be doing something good for culture, for society. Um, and all of this goes back to education. It is a fundamental reason that, you know, we've seen this. And um, he, he actually starts that book off by talking about, uh, you know, 2016, 17, the phrase adulting, you know, kind of is like the word of the year, adulting. You hear it all the time back then. I guess it's kind of gone out a little bit by now, but people were kind of like making fun of like, you know, doing the laundry, adulting, like, because it, 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 it's almost like comical, you know, at this point, because uh, they we, we were never raised or formed uh, that we had to become adults or that we ought to become adults and that that was actually a, a beautiful, good thing to become. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. I, I also, you know, it's tragic when I, when I think about the kind of education that, you know, you're advocating for, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so jealous that I, I really didn't get that. I'm not saying my education was terrible by any means, but I really didn't get that classical, grounding. I had to do a lot of it myself, which mm-hmm. genuinely, I mean, some people are autodidacts, but I, I genuinely think there is so much value in good teaching, good mentorship, um, you know, having a guide in some of these texts uh, or somebody who has read them many times and thought about them for, for a long time, because like a lot of these texts are difficult uh, to break into on your own, sort of without a guide mm-hmm. out in, you know, YouTube land or whatever. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm like re- actively regretful because it's so much easier to learn in the, the period of time, particularly I think in modern life, in yeah. the period of time that's set aside for learning than it is when you are an adult later in your life, right? And so I guess I've never thought about it before. Maybe th- that is part of our crisis of adulting or whatever mm-hmm. uh, is that 
at the time in our lives when we had the most time, the most brain plasticity, 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 um, you know, better memory, better um, everything, you know, we wasted our time uh, with some of these really frivolous, childish texts. Um, and then it, it's hard. It's hard as an adult to to go back. And I mean, um, podcast guest and buddy Spencer Clavin, I think, does a really, really good job of of um, opening up these texts for people who didn't have that kind of rigorous classical education. Um, but it's it's hard. It takes, you know, setting aside a lot of time in your busy adult lives. It takes like a, a sort of skill that most people um I lose over over the course once they they get through that education part of their lives or graduate from college or whatever it is um in in terms of like focusing for a long time on on a dense text and then thinking about it afterwards um you know it, it's 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 really a shame and maybe that's part of the reason that uh people in my generation are diving back into what was easy and nostalgic because that's kind of all we've got to fall back on it's it, it, we, we can't then take out a text where we might have had a childish understanding or a surface level understanding um you know in, in let's say eighth grade but then still has so much to teach uh you know a 35 year old and a 55 year old and an 80 year old right it's so, it's so true and i think it, it's even harder now you know that we've got these these toxic little devices that we all carry with us um, I had, you know, one of my, my best memories, and I had no idea at the time how formative it was on me when I was 21 years old, I uh, drove all the way from Louisiana to Alaska for a summer, and I spent the summer working in the slime lines, but in Alaska, it never really gets that dark until about midnight, and so I would read, and there was nothing to distract me. There was nothing to do but read, right? Um, I think I learned more that summer. Remember, I, I got a copy of Dost, Dost I can never say it right because of a, a childhood speech impediment, Dostoyevsky's uh, Crime and Punishment. And it was like I could do that or twiddle my thumbs. There was nothing else to do um, from like seven until I would fall asleep um, and, and uh, read deeper than I ever have probably since then in my entire life. And that those great stories, you know, which are deeply formative, if we're missing this window to put young people in front of the best stories, the stories that are going to inspire them to live lives of heroic virtue, uh, you know, the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation, it's a missed opportunity. And, and you're so right. You used the word uh, plasticity a minute ago. Um, or tried know, to. Yeah. Language acquisition, um, you know, it, it peaks at age seven or eight, you know, um, kids are sponges for language. Um, the fact that, you know, most of our schools don't even introduce the language till maybe middle school, but usually not till high school, uh, missed opportunity. These classical schools, uh, we've, I've got my, my kiddos in a classical school now, uh, you know, they're doing Latin uh, at seven or eight years old and they're absolute sponges for it, right? And they like it, it clicked, it makes sense to them. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd say, you know, one other thing I, I wanted to mention here is I, I really think if you're, you're hearing this, uh, this podcast, the, the best argument I think for this kind of education is, is honestly just meeting uh, these young people. And I, I want to be careful in saying that because I don't want to bash, you know, public school. I met amazing public school families. I taught in public schools for 10 years. But if you go to a classical charter, you go to a classical school like the Veritas School in Richmond, um, or you go to, you meet you meet some of these homeschool students, um, it's shocking. Like these young people are amazing. Um, the way they, especially these homeschool students where, you know, people have this silly idea that they're like wearing, you know, denim overalls and they're right. Um, these students are are brilliant. They excel in things like debate. Um, in fact, 
my interaction with homeschool kids is they seem way more socially adjusted and far less awkward, especially talking to adults, I think, than like your typical run-of-the-mill, you know, kid from, from mainstream uh, schooling right now. Um, so, and I think that is what is going to make this this movement continue to just take off is, is when people say, wow, I, I, I want my, you know, two-year-old to be like that when they're 16 or 17. Uh, I'm going to put them in that kind of school. So uh, to to round this out and and, and wrap it up, um, you know, it's it's so the vision you're you're sort of laying out. It sounds wonderful. I mean, it's giving me sort of regret, like I said, about uh, the education that I received. Um, but it's it's an, and but we've we've talked about and agree that it's mm-hmm. not what's on offer. Um, you know, last year was the the best, last legislative session was the best year for school choice, uh, yeah. probably ever. I think it's arguable um, to say ever, even from, from the early days when those programs started. Um, there have been so many new programs passed that allow families to um, do exactly what you just said. Uh, if, if they see a 16-year-old who um, just seems to have really flourished and, and been given that classical foundation, it gives them, you know, their, their five-year-old, um, regardless of what their financial background might be, um, gives them hope that they can actually put their five-year-old in, on the same track. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how, how is school choice the prerequisite um, in our current system? I, I mean, I said before that there is some tension between the idea of a pluralistic system and a universally valuable idea uh, of what education is, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how is school choice integral to your classical vision? Yeah, again, I, I think uh, primarily you, you put parents uh, in front of these two different options or, or maybe countless different options. And uh, I think, you know, generally and, and fine, if, if parents look at it and they say, OK, I've looked at a classical option and I'm also looking at a modern progressive option, I'm going to stick with this. More power to them. That's that's fine. I, I don't think that's going to happen a whole lot. Though. I think the majority of parents across the political spectrum, right, center, left, wherever they may be, uh, I think that that again, they they they're going to value this kind of education, and we're seeing that already. I think we can use again these these kind of classical charter schools as examples for what will happen if we open open this up and just let competition happen. You know, uh, among these schools, um, it is you know education is a sacred thing. Uh, it's not something to to just mess with and to introduce new ideas, educational philosophies that are, are sometimes younger than the students in the classroom, right? We want to be really careful before we shift in fundamental ways as the mainstream schools have done in the past few decades, what we're doing, why we're doing at the ends of education. Um, so I think, you know, and there's all different varieties as well of, of these classical schools. You know, I'm a Roman Catholic. I love Catholicism. We go to a very classical, very Catholic school. It's fantastic, right? Uh, classical education is also taking off, you know, as, as I understand it, among a lot of, of atheists and agnostics as well. Um, you know, there's classical Jewish schools. Again, I co-host a podcast with with a Muslim. So talking about the, within the classical uh, framework, there is a, a vision because it is fundamentally centered on, on universal human things uh, that I think makes it far more compatible with a pluralistic society uh, than what mainstream K-12 is offering right now, where actually what is kind of being forced, and for many families, there's no way out of it, uh, does not align to uh, their own vision, their own values, or the things that are most universal for all of us. 
Well, I, I'm really glad that that so many parents are and so many families are seeing the value um, in this type of education. I think this might be one of my most optimistic podcasts ever. Uh, it's just it's so gratifying to know that there is this underground movement, um, you know, that that is obviously not getting a lot yeah. of media coverage or or um, being noticed by the sort of powers that be. But the the, the idea that there are, you know, thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of, of families and students who are are quietly um, sort of yeah. enrolling their kids in, in this in this uh, this great yeah. tradition of passing passing down um, the the soul of of, of civilization is, is very cheering to me. Yeah, I love this. Love the conversation. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, this has been a movement that has been off the radar now for three decades slowly the classical movement in the homeschool world and in the charter school world and the catholic world and all these different spheres and it's coming together now as one movement where they're all kind of saying the same thing and pointing back uh to the again the tradition i think that was at the center of, of really um why america's founders you know the stories the vision the kind of education that formed them uh into the leaders that they were to to, to cast i believe the the best best vision for uh, a nation uh, that, that you could possibly have. Uh, and as this has been a delight uh, to chat with you uh, this morning, love what you're doing here on the podcast. And thank you for all of your work uh, advancing school choice. Well, thank you so much for coming on Jeremy Wayne Tate. You can find him um, at CLT and also on, on Twitter and his own podcast anchored. And uh, thank you to our listeners. High noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the independent women's forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Uh, please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple podcasts, uh, ACAST, Google play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave. We'll see you next time on high noon. <laughs>